0: Well, there is a handout on the music stand if you didn't bring yours from last week. I hope you're holding on to these handouts. Uh, I know it's towards the end here. We're going to be taking a break from our series in the Old Testament survey after the new year, I suppose, will be when we'll switch over because we still got the minor prophets to finish up the latter prophets, the book of the 12. And that'll take us probably two weeks, and then we'll have uh, Christmas and. So probably right in starting in January, we'll start a new Sunday school series. And then we'll see whether later in the year we get back and finish the Old Testament survey. But this morning, I wanted to finish up what we began last week in the book of Ezekiel. So if you have your Ezekiel notes, go ahead and pull those back out. We'll do a quick review, and then we'll get into the problems, the difficulties in interpreting some of the passages of Ezekiel, and there's a a fair number of difficulties, and some of them are quite thorny. So, we'll begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dig into Ezekiel. Father, we thank you for bringing us safely together this Sunday morning, we thank you for the snow and the rain and for all the ways that you bless the earth. Lord, as we've just celebrated this last week, the blessing of the harvest with our Thanksgiving festival, we just turn to you and remind ourselves of your faithfulness every year, every day. And we're thankful that above and beyond all the physical blessings that we enjoy, we have the spiritual riches that are found in Jesus Christ. And as we are gathered now in his name, we pray that the word of Christ, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that you would open up our hearts and minds to understand, especially the book of Ezekiel here this morning. Give me wisdom to speak and give us all ears to hear, hearts to understand. May this not just be a routine or an exercise for us, but Lord, stoke up the the fire of our heart, the hunger and thirst that you command us to have for your word. May we all have hungry souls recognizing that this is the bread of life and we need it in order to really live. Lord we pray for those who will be coming later that you give them safety as they travel down to church, and that you would continue to do your work among all the churches who are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ in building us up and bringing us to the unity of the faith. Amen. All right so open up your Bibles to the Book of Ezekiel and while you're doing that I'll remind you of the purpose of the Book of Ezekiel and that is there on the handout that I gave you last week that The book of Ezekiel, like the other latter prophets, are set against the backdrop of the exile of Israel, both the northern kingdom, which had gone into exile earlier, and the southern kingdom. And so the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple were necessary measures for God's glory in judging his disobedient people. However, in the future... Yahweh, the God of Israel, will restore a repentant remnant of his people to the land and will establish them there with a new temple. So you see that the temple is a key part of the book, the destruction, the restoration of both Jerusalem and its temple, all for the glory of God in judgment and in restoration. So that's the purpose of the book of Ezekiel, and it's not dissimilar to the other latter prophets. Isaiah also is largely written about the coming judgment of Israel in the exile. And then Isaiah 40 through 66 was really kind of set in that period of the exile, even though it was ahead of Isaiah's own time. He spoke prophetically to that future generation. Jeremiah living in Jerusalem during the time of its destruction. Ezekiel being among the exiles in the land of the Chaldeans. And so all of the prophets are really set against this key historical event of the exile. Ezekiel, you remember what we talked about him last week? His name means strengthened by God. He is referred to as Son of Man 93 times in the book, which is basically God's way of letting us know and reminding Ezekiel that he's only a human and that God is the Exalted One. And then also the key idea there that we find somewhat unique to Ezekiel's calling, that God identifies him as a watchman among the people of Israel. That just like you've got the watchman who stands on the tower and lets you know when the foreign army is coming to invade so that you can prepare and hope to save your life, so also there's the spiritual watchman who's got to stand on the wall and tell the people when destruction is coming uh, so that they can repent and save their life. And that's a key theme there in chapter 3 and also chapter 33. And then as far as the dates of the book go, you remember it's written on your outline that he began prophesying in 593 BC that's the date that is connected to chapter 1 verse 2 and then the last of his prophecies that we have recorded is in chapter 29:17 that's the latest date that we have in the book and that would have been 571 BC so 593 to 571 With 586, you remember being the key date in between there, which is the final destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. So he started prophesying seven years before the final destruction, and he continued to prophesy afterwards. Ezekiel himself being taken into exile in 597 four years before he entered into his prophetic ministry at the age of 30. So that's a fresh review of the man who wrote the book and the time in which he wrote it. As far as the outline goes, you remember we gave it to you in three parts, and you've got the opening here, but really there's three major sections of the book. Judgment on Judah, God's glory departing, judgment on all the nations, And then God's restoration of his people with the glory returning in chapters 33 to 48. So this is a similar pattern that we see in the book of Isaiah. The first half focusing on judgment, second half focusing on restoration, and then also each of the prophets have this section of judgment on the nations. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, they all include that all nations have to answer to God, not just the people of Israel, God's covenant nation. All right, so that's the outline. Then the themes, just real quick review. We had God's glory, and that is departing from the temple, and then God's glory returning. Chapter 1 is a vision of God's glory in Ezekiel's call. So glory is a key theme. And you remember that we defined glory as the outward expression of the inward excellence of Yahweh, and that the meaning of the term gives us this idea of a weighty impression, Uh, It's like when they used to say back in the day, whoa, that's heavy. That's what you get, the idea of heaviness with God in his glory. That's where the root of the word glory, kavod, comes from. And so it makes a strong impression of you, this outward expression of God's inward excellence. And then secondly, the theme was God's revelation. And that's highlighted by that phrase, then they will know that I am the Lord. And 73 times in the book, God says, then they will know that I am the Lord. Israel's going to know, the nations are going to know, and that was a key theme in the book we talked about last week. Then third, the major theme was the future for all of Israel, that this book is written to the house of Israel, and that's different from Isaiah and Jeremiah, which were mostly ministering to Judah. But now that the exile has occurred and both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have lost their kingdom, they've lost their autonomy, they've been pulled into exile, now they've been reunited in exile. No reason for them to be separate anymore politically because politically they've lost it all. So this reuniting of Israel is a key theme and the future that God has in mind for all of Israel And last week we talked about how the lost tribes is kind of a misnomer. There are no lost tribes in the sense that they've disappeared off the earth, just that we don't know which Israelites and which Jews belong to which tribe as as well as we did before the temple was destroyed and all the genealogical records with it. And then the Spirit of God, also a key theme, especially when we looked at that passage about the new heart related to the new covenant. All right, so that is a quick review of what we covered last week in 10 minutes. This week, I want to dive into the difficulties that are in the book, and I've got those listed on your handout. So let's walk through some of those together. The first one is in chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. So turn in your Bible, Ezekiel, to chapter 3, and let's read verses 16 through 21. And the question that we have for this text is, Is the death and the life that God is talking about in these verses, is it physical death or is it spiritual death? Is it physical life or is it spiritual life? What's the focus? What's the main meaning of the text here? Maybe it has a secondary application to one of the others, but let's go ahead and read it with that question in mind. "'And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel.' Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you shall have delivered your own soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul." So here are the dying and the living because of sin and judgment. Are we talking about physical death and physical life? Are we talking about eternal life and eternal death? What is in view in these verses? My understanding of the passage is that it's talking primarily about physical life and physical death because that was the, the main way that God was showing his judgments through the prophets, that the prophet would prophesy. That's here. Uh, The nation is going to be judged, and many people are going to die. And if you repent, you can be saved, like Jonah and Nineveh. But if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. And so this righteous man, this is not necessarily someone, we're talking about losing their eternal life, that he turns from his righteousness, and, and now he's going to die. And we're talking about dying eternally, a spiritual death. Now, I think this is a person who is a righteous man, who is going to be punished, he's going to be judged for his sin if he doesn't repent. And we have this even in the New Testament. In the New Testament, being written to the Corinthians, Paul said that many among you sleep because you are abusing the Lord's table and you're not repenting of this wickedness at this most sacred hour of the church's meeting. And so punishment for sin... By physical death or chastening unto death is a, is a biblical idea, and I think that's the best way of reading the passage here in Ezekiel. We tend to read everything from a New Testament perspective because that's what we're used to, and the New Testament is full of warnings about spiritual life, eternal life, and eternal death. The Old Testament, not as much. The Old Testament was talking more about physical death and physical life, and that was laying the groundwork, the foundation for understanding what the New Testament then later built upon that of the spiritual life and the eternal life. So don't get confused when you're reading through a passage like this and be like, oh, looks like you can lose your salvation and be lost if you commit this mortal sin and and you die without repentance or something like that. Any questions about death and life in 3.16 through 21? There's a similar passage in chapter 33, verses 1 through 9, but for time's sake, we're going to keep moving. So the next one is in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Let's take a look at that. It's on the same page for me. And the question that we have here, what is the significance of the 390 days that Ezekiel lies on his side and the 40 days that he lies on his other side, God says it corresponds to the years of their punishment. And so is this something that happened in the past? Is this something that's going to happen in the future? Is it literal? Is it symbolic? So this is actually one of the thorniest issues in the book of Ezekiel and probably one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to try to figure out exactly how to apply what it says here. So let's take a look at it. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. This is where... The siege of Jerusalem is being symbolized. That's the title for the chapter in the ESV. And he's set up a brick which represents Jerusalem. He's put siege works up against it. And then he says in verse 4, You lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment so long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. And you shall shut your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you so that no one can turn you from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. So the question here is, what are these 390 years that represent the punishment of Israel? And what are these 40 years, 40 days, a day for each year, that represent the punishment of Judah? Because this doesn't seem to correspond with the numbers of their actual punishment when you're looking at the time of the exile. seems like the context here would be the exile, But how was Israel punished for 390 years in exile? We don't really have any historical information that would line up with that kind of time period. And then the 40 years for Judah is also problematic because their exile was 70 years, according to Jeremiah, not 40 years. And so how do we make sense of this? So it could be something that happened already in the past. Some people have said this could correspond to a time period of judgment that they'd already experienced, and they'd try to find certain dates in Israel's history that would line up with this. Some people might even go all the way back to their time in Egypt and say there was 430 years of slavery in Egypt and the 390 plus 40 equals to 430. Other people might say, well, there's a correspondence there between their time in Egypt, but that's not what Ezekiel's talking about. It's just a historical correspondence that God has put together in his sovereignty. Some people think, well, it's still future because this is a prophet and he's prophesying about what's going to happen in the future. And so if you take it literally, and he's starting here in 597, this takes you up to 167 BC and they say, well, that was the time when Antiochus Epiphanes was there and that they cleansed the temple and you have the Festival of Lights and Hanukkah and they have a restoration for a time of independence of the nation and the temple. And so they would say, well, this corresponds to that time period leading up to the victory over the Old Testament Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes. And I think that's a good option. I try to take things as literally as possible, but ultimately we don't really know for sure. Some of these problems, you can have your view, you can have your uh, perspective, but in the end you kind of have to say, maybe, I think. And I don't know if it's right to bring up here, but I think also there's been times in the Old Testament where some numbers have had difficulties with census numbers or the the years of a king's reign. And maybe there's some kind of scribal problem here with the numbers. We don't have any evidence that would back that up. And I don't know if a lot of people have proposed that as, as a solution or a theory. But it is probably the most difficult passage in Ezekiel. I would recommend you read what good study Bibles have to say on the subject. The MacArthur Study Bible, the ESV Study Bible represent the best answers that we have available to difficulties in the text. So really a a study Bible is a wonderful tool and I I recommend you make use of it when you're doing Old Testament study and Old Testament reading. A passage like this, it can give you a lot of help on. So I'm not going to spend too much time On that one, because I want to keep moving. Number three, who is the king of Tyre in chapter 28, verses 11 through 19? Let's take a look at chapter 28, verses 11 through 19. There are several passages in the Old Testament prophets that seem to be addressed to a human king, but at the same time, they seem to go beyond talking to that human king and they seem to be talking about Satan. There's a famous passage in Isaiah that is similar to this, and here's the one in Ezekiel's book. It's Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 through 19, the lament over the king of Tyre. So I'm going to read this, and then as I'm reading it, be asking yourself, is this about the historical king of Tyre? Is this about the king as symbolic of Satan, or is it about Satan? Just straight out. Those are the, the three major ways of understanding this prophecy. And it's in a section that is all prophecy against Tyre and we've got like two chapters of prophecy focusing on the city of Tyre, which is somewhat unique in Ezekiel's book that it gets such a focus. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created, till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary, so I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end. You shall be no more forever. So, You can understand why some people have read this and they've thought, well, this can't really be talking about the king of Tyre because was the king of Tyre in the Garden of God in Eden? Was he blameless, sinless in all of his ways until unrighteousness was found in him? It just seems like some of this language does not apply to a human king. It actually seems like a lot of the language doesn't apply to a human king. And so the question is, well, if the passage is introduced as a lamentation over the king of Tyre, who is the king of Tyre? Are we talking about what you would expect, the human king, or are we talking about the spiritual ruler, the god, so to speak, of Tyre? Well, there's been a lot of work done on this, obviously, and what many evangelical scholars think is that it actually is just this poetic language that's talking about the king of Tyre, And that perhaps the king of Tyre had made inflated claims about himself and had compared himself in some ways to some form of deity. And so God is kind of mocking him with his own terminology and saying, this is how you think of yourself, this is how you describe yourself, but I'm going to bring you down. And that, I think, has grown in popularity among evangelicals. But the classic position of the church has been that this is a direct statement about Satan to Satan, that God is addressing Satan as the king of Tyre. And there have been those who have tried to support this archaeologically, that the idols in the city of Tyre were called the king of Tyre. I haven't looked into that evidence too much to be able to determine how reliable that identification is, but I think it's certainly plausible that they called some of their idols, some of their gods, the king of Tyre, and that could be what therefore God is referencing when he says, say to the king of Tyre, he's speaking to their false gods, which of course is a representation of Satan himself, as there is no such thing as a false god, but what these pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, as the New Testament also affirms. So, Whether you want to see this as somewhat mixed, that it's referring both in some ways to the historical king who at that time would have been Ethbaal III, or if you think that it can also be at the same time referencing Satan in kind of a a dual-meaning, typological type of way, I think that's a viable position. A human king who is representing Satan or something like that. I'm open to either B or C. I think it could be a mixed message to both the human king and to Satan behind the throne, so to speak. Or I'm happy also with the classic position that this is a direct statement, a description of Satan himself. And I think you don't go far wrong if you read it that way. All right. Well, if you have questions about that, you can talk with me more later. But let's move on to number four. And for that, we need to move to chapter 34, verses 23 and 24, And our question in this passage, and also the similar passage in chapter 37, is who is David in this passage? Are we talking about David, the actual historical person, being resurrected and being leader over the people of Israel in the resurrection? Are we talking about the Messiah, who is the son of David? And so you can reference him by calling him David. And so let's take a look at those verses. Briefly as well. Chapter 34, verses 23 and 24 say this I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Notice that he refers to him as a prince among them, and that becomes significant later in the book of Ezekiel. In chapters 40 through 48, you've got an extended section here. Now, all of this is about the restoration of God's people, but 40 through 48 kind of stands apart as it describes a temple that has not yet existed, a division of the land that has not yet existed, and it talks about conditions in a future glorious Israel that doesn't seem to have ever happened before, and so most of us who are pre-millennial take Ezekiel 40 through 48 as being a description of the millennial temple and what the land of Israel is going to look like during the millennium. And there in those chapters, it also references the prince in chapter 44 verse 3 and chapter 46 verse 16. And so you have to take those into account as you're trying to do your interpretation here in the earlier section of the restoration part of the book when it talks about David being king over them. So are we talking about David being resurrected and ruling under Christ? That's probably the most literal interpretation. And I think also in light of how I read chapters 40 through 48, I think it also lays weight to that position as well. It could also be a figure of speech for the Messiah, and many interpreters take that position, and I don't think it's heretical. However, I think the better reading here is to understand that this is a a reference to a resurrection of David and that David is going to have a key place as a prince over the people of Israel underneath God, the Messiah, Jesus. And so, a very interesting passage there. All right, let's also talk about chapter 38 and the identity of Gog and the timing of this invasion that Gog... From the land of Magog, brings against the people of Israel. Gog appears to be the name of this human leader, this chief prince, as the ESV translates, of Meshech and Tubal. And so, Magog, Meshech, and Tubal, you go back and you look at ancient maps, these would be regions that were far north of Israel. And so, very often, commentators will identify this with Russia. Russia is far to the north of Israel. Now, the word for chief, where you see that in verse 2, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, that word chief is in Hebrew, rosh, rosh. And people identify rosh as Russia. And so there's been historical identifications with Russia also with that name, rosh. But as you see, the ESV and, and Contemporary Scholarship thinks, well, that's a misidentification, that he's not identifying Rosh with Russia. There doesn't seem to be a linguistic connection there if you go back and study the Hebrew and, and all the related languages. However, that's why you have it translated as the chief prince. And that is what the meaning of Rosh is here in the Hebrew text. So we have here this human leader of these regions far to the north of Israel, Meshach tubal and Magog, he leads an invasion against Israel, and it's here in chapters 38 and 39, and it's in between what we have on the restoration of God's people, but then it's before chapters 40 through 48, and so if we're following chronologically, then perhaps, you know, we want to see this as before the millennium, and there's really a lot of different options as to when chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel were supposed to take place. So one is is that it's already passed, perhaps during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes around 167 BC. That was the invasion that was being talked about. Others think, well, it's at the end of the church age, before the Great Tribulation. So that sometime here in the next few years, maybe there's going to be this invasion of Israel from the north, from Russia and other countries that are associated with it, and that this prophecy is going to be fulfilled even before the Great Tribulation, the seven years that we are anticipating. Other people think, well, it's going to take place during the middle of the Tribulation. That's when these northern nations are going to invade the land of Israel and be destroyed Others think it's at the end of the tribulation. That's MacArthur's position. Some people think that it's a transition between the tribulation and the millennium, which should also be you know towards the end, but it's not at the end, it's like after the end. And then some people place it at the end of the millennium because of the way that this similar type of situation is described in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20 also talks about Gog and Magog. Uh, it's different than what we have here, but it's very similar, and so you're left with that decision. Is this the same thing that's in the book of Revelation, or is Revelation describing a different event that is similar, that's patterned on this one? And so it's a, it's a thorny issue also, and I've gone back and forth in my uh, views on it. Someday if I preach through the book of Ezekiel, then I'll really have to figure it out. But for now, I'd say read through a good study Bible and... Hold a position tentatively. Don't think it's a simple solution. All right, and then finally, I want to talk about the temple in chapters 40 through 48. Is Ezekiel's temple literal or is it just symbolic? And again, this is kind of a difference between a dispensational reading of Scripture versus a more covenantal reading of Bible prophecy that those who look at the Old Testament prophets and say, well, it's mostly all fulfilled spiritually in the church this is another one of those passages where we divide that we who are dispensational in our view of bible prophecy we think no this is something that has to be fulfilled in history just like all the other prophecies of scripture you can't just make it symbols and spiritual being fulfilled in the church and so that's a key interpretive issue in the text If it's symbolic, what is it symbolic of? Is it symbolic of the church? Is it symbolic of the New Jerusalem that we have at the end of the book of Revelation? And so it could be, you know, to some interpreters, I don't think this is a good way of reading it, a spiritual picture of Solomon's temple. That's the second temple. And this is like what the glory of the second temple could have been or should have been or a idyllic symbolic picture of that temple. I don't think that's the right way to read it. Instead, I think this is talking about a third temple. Solomon was the first temple. The temple that Jesus came to was the second temple. I think there's going to be a third temple, not just during the tribulation, but after the great tribulation is over, after the Antichrist is destroyed, then there's going to be kind of a a second cleansing of the temple, just like after Antiochus had defiled the temple, they cleansed it and so after the Antichrist defiles the temple, then they're going to cleanse it and beautify it and glorify it during the millennium, and so I think this is the millennial temple. But people say, well, if this is a millennial temple, you know, this is going backwards, because Christ has come, and he's the once-for-all sacrifice, and all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they were just there to teach us about sacrifice for sins and to point ahead to Christ and now that Christ has come sacrifices have been done away with and so if you're going to go into the millennium and you're going to reinstitute the temple and the Levites and the sacrifices all according to Ezekiel 40 through 48 that's like going backwards and we've already passed that we've had the fulfillment of those things we don't need to to go back to those things in fact the whole book of Hebrews is telling us don't go back to the temple and the sacrifices and so People who want to interpret it symbolically or spiritually, they accuse us of of really going backwards in God's plan by anticipating this future temple with future sacrifices. So, if premillennial dispensationalism is right and there's a third temple, what are we supposed to make of the sacrifices in this temple? What is their purpose? Why do we have them? Why does Israel have them, as I should say? Well, I think your problem with having sacrifices after Christ has come as the once-for-all sacrifice, I think part of the, the mindset that contributes to that problem is a somewhat Neoplatonic worldview. And that is that Christianity, through Augustine and the Alexandrian school, really developed a lot of ideas that the physical world was not really important And that really the only thing that was important was spiritual ideas and the spiritual world. And this is part of the philosophy of of a very powerful movement in academic circles called Neoplatonism. And that's influenced the church strongly through those theologians and their influence down throughout the centuries. And instead, I think what we need is we need a biblical understanding of how the physical world relates to the spiritual world. The physical world is supposed to picture... The spiritual world. It's not that the physical world is unimportant, it's not that it's more important, but its importance lies in the fact that it is the visible manifestation, it's a kind of an artistic representation of the invisible spiritual world and the glory of God. God created the physical world for his glory. So it's not a bad thing, and it's not something that we're going to move past and be done with, but that in eternity, the, the physical has an important place in God's plan. And that purpose that he had originally is going to be accomplished, that the physical world will be this perfect representation of the spiritual world. And so, the sacrifices that will be offered in the temple are not efficacious for removing of sins in the sense that the blood of Christ is, but instead, they are a picture, a portrait, very similar to what we have when we celebrate the Lord's table, a physical representation of a spiritual idea. And so it's a reminder of what God has done in Christ, and just as the Old Testament sacrifices look forward, these millennial sacrifices look back, and everyone's going to recognize it's just a symbol. Remember what Jesus said about the Lord's table. You do this until I come. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes in this manner. Well, how are we going to remember the Lord's death? How are we going to celebrate the Lord's death after he comes? Well, I think Uh, the sacrifices in the Millennial Temple are the plan. That's how God is going to memorialize the sacrifice of Jesus Christ after Christ returns at this glorious temple in Jerusalem. So I think that's the right way of understanding the temple and the sacrifices and all of that in chapters 40 through 48. And that's going to tie in with our understanding of the book of Revelation. As you see, the book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation have a lot in common, whether you're talking about Gog and Magog or whether you're talking about this vision of a future temple and all of that, the glory of Israel, that there's a lot of parallels between Ezekiel and the book of Revelation, probably either tied for first or second with Daniel as the most important book to understand if you're going to properly interpret the book of Revelation. And I kind of wish I would taught Ezekiel before getting into Revelation, but oh well, here we are. Now, with the time that we have left, I was hoping for a little bit more, so we'll just get started on this today, and then we'll see whether we come back to this at the beginning of next week. And so I'm going to pass around these handouts, and we'll start over here. And I want you to divide up into small groups, two, three, four at the most, and walk through together these Old Testament discussion questions, these Old Testament survey discussion questions, And I wrote many of these based upon our course goals, that we want to be able to articulate the purpose and message of each book, be familiar with the major events and people, be able to communicate the big picture and relate the parts to the whole, discuss the major theological themes and the significance for us today, and how it helps us understand the New Testament. So these questions are designed to get you talking about that with one another